In the 21st century, there is only one way to start a business. I built a really small, basic website on Squarespace that was like, the future of footwear is about to change. You know, leave your email address here if you're interested. Okay, just kidding. Businesses actually begin with a light bulb moment. For Kendall Barber, that moment came when her sister took a vacation to Bali. And while she was in Bali, she walked into a store, she saw a pair of boots that she loved, and she went to put them on and she couldn't quite zip them up over her calf. She felt devastated because she loved these boots until the man in the store said, no problem, I'll just make these boots for you. And he took out a measuring tape, he measured her calves and her feet, and then made the boots to fit her. So Kendall and her sister Justine asked themselves, who doesn't want fabulous, custom-made footwear? We did surveys, we hosted parties where we invited people we didn't know and served them wine and asked them to be really honest with us if it was a problem. And we started to hear a resounding, yes, yes, I can't find boots that fit. So then they made their website. This is Earning Curve, a podcast about business in Canada from Interact and Gimlet Creative. No one builds a business on their own. On each episode of this show, we're meeting entrepreneurs like Kendall and listening in on their conversations with founders who have struck business gold. In the best of times, retail is ultra competitive and constantly shifting. In the world of online shopping, what is the role of brick and mortar stores? Today, we'll look at two brands that are navigating that divide. Later, Kendall Barber and I will be joined by Peter Simons. He and his brother Richard are the latest in five generations of the Simons family to run La Maison Simons, the national department store brand. Under his leadership, the company has expanded its physical footprint outside of their native Quebec for the first time, as well as aggressively entered the digital marketplace. We'll hear how and why in a bit. But first, back to Kendall and her made-to-order boots. She and her sister Justine look to centuries-old tradition to name their cutting-edge Edmonton company. So barleycorns were used to measure out your foot length in Tudor England, just like hands for horses. And then poppy seeds were an indication that you were in between barleycorns. So we took poppy seeds and barleycorns and shortened that to create poppy barley as a nod to the historic way of making shoes. Now, Kendall and her sister just had to find someone to make their shoes. They identified some factories in Mexico that seemed promising. And we started by first sending them emails and nobody responded. So we took a week off work and boarded an airplane and went down to Mexico and started showing up at factories. In preparation for our trip down to Mexico, Justine and I acknowledged another very big gap that we had, which was the Spanish language. So we had reached out to um, the Canadian Trade Consulate in Guadalajara and asked them for some introductions to translators. And with her help, we went to factory to factory. The response from the factories were firm, hard, we're not interested, no thanks. But we just kept pressing. We just kept saying, can you think of any other factory? Can you introduce this to anyone else? So on our second to last day there, we were driving around and our translator gets this text message from her daughter. And in the text message, her daughter says, hey mom, there's this girl in my class. Um, Her mom is named Lupita 
and here's her phone number. You should call her and take the girls from Canada to her factory. And that's how it started. We went and knocked on the door and that factory owner said yes to us and we still work with her today. She said the reason she said yes to us is because she saw in us where she had been 10 years earlier as a young entrepreneur starting her own business too. And she thought that it took gumption to show up there and stand on her doorstep. And she thought, if they're crazy enough to come down here and find me, maybe they're crazy enough to make this go. So with a little luck and a lot of audacity, Poppy Barley was on its way to revolutionizing the future of footwear. Or so they thought. In 2012, they opened up sales and waited for thousands of orders to roll in. After the first weekend didn't go crazy like we had anticipated, we set a new goal of selling 100 pairs of boots in 90 days. And that we did accomplish. Since then, Kendall and Justine have doubled their sales every year and grown their staff to dozens. All from a pretty flat-footed start. They've given the experts, especially their partners in the factories in Mexico, room to do their jobs, but not without finding ways to innovate. Justine and I don't come from a footwear background, so sometimes we ask really ridiculous questions, and sometimes that carries us a long ways because they're going, well, that's not how we do it, and we question back, well, why not? Could we do it that way? And sometimes they concede and we try it and it works, and other times they really step in and say, no, like this is why we do it, and their reasons for doing so make sense to us, and we listen to them as our partners. Perhaps the best indicator of how much they value that expertise is Poppy Barley's commitment to ethical and sustainable business practices. Their employees in Mexico are paid on average six times the region's minimum wage. They're provided with health care, paid leave, and fair working hours. That approach has turned out to be good business in more ways than one. We started to tell the story about how our shoes are made, and that is actually the turning point that led to growth for Poppy Riley. And it wasn't just consumers who noticed. So in Canada, we have this tradition where the finance minister unveils the budget wearing new shoes. And the new shoes are supposed to symbolize something that's in the coming budget. So in 2017, our finance minister, Bill Morneau, wore Poppy Barley shoes, symbolizing the focus on entrepreneurship, the discussions of NAFTA in the marketplace as we manufacture in Mexico, we're based in Canada, we have customers in the US and Canada. And so it was absolutely a game changer for us from a recognition perspective across the country. And then it happened again. In 2018, the finance minister wore their shoes for an unprecedented second year in a row as a nod to the budgetary focus on women in the workplace. As Poppy Barley's stars continue to rise, they've kept tweaking their model. When we first created Poppy Barley, we had visions of being a pure play online store only. We still find that within Canada, most of our customers like to make their first purchase in person. So they've been following us online on their social channels, and then they'll show up to a pop-up shop to try the shoes on or look at a handbag and then make that first purchase in person and then repeat online. And so our plan right now is to roll out retail stores across Canada over the upcoming years. 
For the last few years, Poppy Barley has opened pop-up shops in places like Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. And last year, Kendall opened her first full-time brick-and-mortar store in her hometown. Now they're readying themselves to make the leap into physical retail across the country. No sweat, right? After the break, Kendall and I are joined by Peter Simons, the president and CEO of La Maison Simons, based in Quebec City. Despite the fact that his company is 180 years old, he still has firsthand experience with pushing into new markets. We'll talk to him next. Peter Simons isn't an entrepreneur, in the sense that he didn't found the company that has his last name. That distinction belongs to his great-grandfather, who set up a dry goods shop in Quebec in 1840. For most of its history, La Maison Simons remained solely a Quebec institution. But Peter, alongside his brother Richard, led the push into new provinces, while also modernizing the company and establishing its online footprint. So Peter shares all the hallmarks of a great entrepreneur in that he's taken a precious family business and boldly expanded its scope and vision. He knows a thing or two about bricks and mortar. But first, I want to know what it's like to grow up in a family where four generations have run the store. In my younger years, Simons was it was a very small company. I mean, even once I started, my parents talked a lot about the first year they did a million in sales and my father came home and said, "Let's we're going to dinner. We did a million in sales and they had 13 employees and there were all these little anecdotes. But uh, we talked about it a little bit. We were conscious that my father went to work every day, happy to go to work. And I never heard him complain about working or uh, he loved, I think he loved, he did love what he, he, he did. But on the other hand, my parents also, I think, wanted to protect us a little bit and give us some space to just find what we wanted to do. They just wanted us to find a passion. They understood that we had to like and love, hopefully, what we did so that we'd put the energy into it. So there was no pressure at all. They wanted us to be happy and make our way. So if there was no pressure, what did make the decision to go into the family business? And did you ever think about doing it separate from the family company? Or, or tell me about that that process. Uh, so... I went to the Richard Ivey Business School, and I really did not commit until the last year. Really, my father took me aside at one point and just said, look, I I want to know you're welcome. I want you to know that, but, uh, you, you know, you have to decide because uh, it's, it's a company I have responsibilities. And that was the fourth year. I interviewed in New York with some people, and I had a couple of job offers. But I think I really just decided to come back because I was confident that it would be a very enriching and uh, perhaps a challenging situation which it certainly turned out to be with my father. <laughs> I think I think my father and my mother did it pretty well because uh, you don't want you don't want to push your kids into business and five generations you're certainly attached to it but your dream can't be their dreams. But I think by osmosis there's a little bit of you transmit just the pleasure you're having in building something and working hard and the values are really more important than the family business in a sense. So, Kendall, what was your business background before starting Poppy Barley, and how did you get the idea that this was something you wanted to pursue? So, my background in business is I did go to business school right out of the gates, 
And I always knew that I wanted to start my own business. I think it came from having a father that worked for the railway and we moved every two to three years growing up. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to have control over my destiny and my future. And so I just didn't know what that business was going to be. After I graduated from university, I worked different jobs. I've always been someone who's just really followed what I'm interested in. So I would go work somewhere. And as soon as I kind of lost the passion or the enjoyment for it or spent too many days not being really excited to go to work, it was time to find a new job. And um, I kind of continued like that until we started Poppy Barley. And so you both work really closely with your siblings. You know, what has that been like and, and what has that meant to you? Justine and I work very closely together. I think overall it's been phenomenal for us. One of the things that I think shows up in our business is that we care more about each other as people than we do about the business. And I think that leads to how we approach our business very similarly with like a lot of love and respect, just like you would for a family member. I always joke too that we are excellent at arguing and getting over it very quickly and moving on because we've been doing that our whole it's lives pretty together. Essential. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and definitely there are challenges too. It's um, sometimes really hard to pack up what happened at work and go to a family dinner and um, put that aside and put on a happy face for a few hours. But I think overall, what makes it work for us is that we share the same vision for the company. So whenever we're not on the same page, it's only about how we're getting there, not about where we're going. Yeah, I, I agree with that a lot too. I've had more years with my brother. I think we complement each other well. It certainly brought us closer together. You know, when he came back from university, we bought this crappy old fishing camp together. And my father often joked that it was probably the best investment we ever made. And I mean, I'm talking like we paid $15,000 a piece or something. And because it made us, it gave us a place outside of work to work together. And we were also raised in a in an environment where I think you always have to make that choice. Does the business exist for the family or does the family exist for the business? And when it's private, you have that choice to make. I mean, you can decide it's about the next quarter like any public corporation But as a family member, you're building something together. It takes on a feeling of responsibility and you really want the family to exist for the benefit of the business. And and you work with people and your name's on the door and I think you really try to build something to be proud of. And you always know that your brothers, tomorrow morning, regardless what happens today, you're coming in and you want the same thing. You want to build a quality business. And so you can have your disputes and your fights and these little things. Rancunier, we say in French, rancunier is uh, dwelling on it. You know, stew. You don't stew on it. You get over it pretty fast, as Kendall said. So, what I heard there is that Justine and I need a recreational property together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's my advice. So, what were the family expectations when you decided to be a part of Simon's the business? The first day I stepped in here, he said, "Look, if you can't do the job, or I don't think you're doing, I want to tell you you're my son and I love you, but I'm going to fire you." Because I'm not going to put five generations of family work at jeopardy. This isn't nepotism. You have to earn your place. So if you're ready to come and start on those terms, uh, great. And he did fire me actually two or three times. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, they were sort of these, these seminal moments where you, it was always about values. It was always about how you approach your curiosity, how you approach change. And if you weren't ready to change, you say, well, if you're not ready to change, that's fine. Just You might as well just leave the business right now. You're there. Oh, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I'll change it. <laughs> so, so give me an example of when that happened. 
The first time it ever happened, I said something to the effect of, well, this is how we do it. Oh, my Lord. He wanted to make the point that if you think this is the how we do it and you're not always questioning and everything isn't on the table at almost every moment of the day in your mind, you're not going to build a successful business. And he was wanted to make a point about that. It was a very forceful point. It was a violent point. But uh, uh, So just being big doesn't make your stresses bigger. It gives you some maybe more cushion. Yes, the mistakes are bigger, but they can't kill you. Yeah, the early days are hard. How were the early days for you, Kendall? Do you feel like you're out of the woods now or is it still, is it still you know, everyday matters? Because I've been, um, I've started five companies myself and it's like every time I start another one, I'm like, oh, why did I do this again? <laughs> like These early days are so miserable. Yeah, I definitely would not describe the feeling at Poppy Barley as out of the woods. I think that we are very much still in it. I think the first two to three years definitely felt harder than where we've landed now. I think we have a sense of who we are and our brand and where we're going at this moment in time. And landing a place and knowing where we're headed has made a huge difference. I mean, we still have all of the struggles that I think most younger companies do. New challenges, um, Justine and I always say that as long as we have new problems, that's a good thing. I think it's where you're hitting your head against the wall for the same problem that you feel really frustrated. Yeah. I have really bad news for Kendall. (laughs) You keep imagining there's light at the end of the tunnel and uh, it doesn't get any better. You go through management plateaus, I like to say, you know, they're 75 million, they're 250. uh, We're in one right now. It's five, 600 million plateau. And it's these moments where the entrepreneur has to say, okay, everything I was and who I was and my style has to completely change because the company needs me to be something different, to manage differently now. Those plateaus don't disappear. Uh, You just hit the plateaus. You have to know when they're there and you have to be strong enough to just accept that if you really are going to serve the business, then you have to be ready to change for the business and the business won't change for you. So that's bad news. I I couldn't couldn't agree more. It's it's like, it's the, I think it's one of the hardest parts of being an entrepreneur is you need to be a totally different leader at different stages of the company. So for most of those 180 years, Simons was a Quebec uh, institution. And under your leadership, Peter, um, you expanded it to be a national brand. And the first location outside of Quebec was, was Edmonton. So tell me a little bit about that decision. Yeah, we were a family business. We're sort of old school in a lot of ways in terms of our business relationships So we look for partners. That's my short answer. So instead of looking for markets where you have customer base established, it's really about finding the right partner and then moving to that city. Yes, we have this range of markets that we we like, that we know we need a certain size of market to exist in. But once we're there in our head, it's really about finding a partner that'll work with us. That there's an interesting situation architecturally that we can work with. Uh, mm-hmm. there is a partner that's going to understand that it's going to take a little more and and that in return they'll get a unique experience. I have a question um, in terms of your focus on Canada. So one of the biggest things that we hear at Poppy Barley is, oh, you need to be expanding to the U.S., you need to go to the U.S. And what I see of Simons is that you've really focused on Canada and I would say with a lot of like Canadian values really in your company too. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of looking at a market that's just Canada for a brand or if there's this need 
to look abroad and across borders? I don't think there's a need. We've defined ourselves a little bit by our values and we're Canada's oldest private family-owned business. Uh, So uh, we focused here. We've always believed in doing less but doing it better, trying to make it quality. So it wasn't just about rapid growth and we were private. So we were able to, to build something what we felt was a quality company. It sounds hokey a little bit, but building a quality company is a very different task than building a big company. And I, I'm not judging anyone. Go back to this <laughs> point on like quality. Maybe give me an example of like where that decision-making value comes in because it's it's like there's so many different ways to grow. Is that growing slow enough so that everything you're executing... You know, like, quickly... Store design, we, we, you know, we talked about having the same store design across the country. It would have been a lot easier. Every store is unique. Uh, commissioning art in the stores. It's a, I love Douglas Goblin. He, he's amazing, but they're not all easy to work with these artists and creating. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, then, and then it's about the people. I mean, I think as a quality company, you're trying to leave more on the table than you take away at times. It's not strictly financial. I'd rather... It's uh, no one gets on board and, you know, if it's about money, you're a mercenary. If it's about love, uh, it, it ha- it's something completely different. I'd like to build a place that people are proud to work and they're happy to work. And, and I think my brother and I are both ready to sacrifice to make that happen. It doesn't mean we're, it's a charitable effort, but uh, those are ways that make the company different. You know, we just opened up last year a zero energy store. There's no way I would have gone to the board, and I've sat on some a couple of big boards in the U.S. and here. There's no way I would want to be pitching that to a big hedge fund. You know, the returns were not not great, but mm-hmm. you know, I think you had to have some vision in terms of what you're trying to do, the role of companies, and and you know, what what are companies' responsibilities. This is not a conversation we're having. I think small entrepreneurs do. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Kendall. It's definitely a conversation that we're having is I think one of the things that's the most exciting about growing for us is that it changes the scope of impact that we can have, right? It gives us a larger platform to work with our factories in different ways, to invest in equipment that we'd like to see there that help raise the level of our product, but also start to tackle things like the environment and sustainability. And I think that for me, it's one of the reasons that I'm in awe of Simon's is I think that you guys have done such an incredible job with your store designs, building a net zero store, your commitment to the community. And I think as business owners, we have a huge responsibility to the community. And I agree with you that um, it's not being discussed in in every room. Everyone wants to have authentic experience, but you have to define that in your head and you have to sacrifice. If it's going to be authentic, there has to be responsibility and sacrifice behind it. I think there is absolutely no choice. Customers our younger customers are smart. They're thinking about it. They have concerns. And we have the freedom, Kendall and I, to actually do something about it. And that's really the magic. That's the magic of starting your own company is is you really do get to set and live by the values you want and make the changes you, you want to see in the world, right? Like I, I look at the trillions of dollars the governments have spent on climate change initiatives, and it's largely going to be you know, one entrepreneur that's going to change uh, the cars and the trucks we drive. And so I think about, you know, I think you guys have both really found that that power to make those own decisions and and to both um, stick by your customer, but also do the right thing. If your heart's in the right place, I think that's where 
important stuff starts. I mean, you can be criticized and you have to listen to that and you have to be open to that and not let it get you down. But you, if your heart's in the right place, you're moving in the right direction. There's value in that. And I think people sense that. Yeah. No, I agree that it's it's a challenging thing to talk about because we're so far from perfect. It's such an imperfect conversation. And whenever you're talking about ethics or environment or sustainability, it also depends where your own values lie. And so when you go out there and we say something, there's always comments or negative feedback or backlash about it or what about this? And I think that that helps drive us forward. And I we always just say the most important thing is to be brave enough to have the conversation. Just start, start it. And um, we really believe that people don't buy boots from us because they need a new pair of boots. There's a thousand places to buy boots. So you have to be stepping into Poppy Barley product because you share the values that we share as a company. And so we have to be really upfront in communicating those values and listening to what's important from our customer. And they're intelligent and they're vocal and they want a different kind of future. And so we need to build that brand for them. It's life. It's about people. Business is about people in the end, more more than ever today. So let's talk about growth strategies in today's environment, because obviously things have changed over the 180 years. I mean, you were talking about making big investments in web 10 years ago. Like, how are you thinking about that in, in today's environment? It's really about a balance. And like, that's what I'm interested in sort of hearing, like, what's the right balance? It's a new equilibrium you're looking for. I think the interesting, you know, word you used was equilibrium, right? And and where does that sit right now? And where should the strategy be for Kendall? Because, you know, we're in an environment where Amazon is exploding and now starting to open up stores, where Sears, who thought they could have 200 stores, has filed for bankruptcy. Like, there's so many um, different places in that moment. Is that is that equilibrium 50-50 brick and mortar and and e-com, or is it totally dependent on the brand and the scale and the strategy? Your e-com sort of, let's call it a wave a little bit of your business, has to just stay crested in front of your bricks and mortar. The stores help develop the web, and the web help develop the stores and pick curiosity. It has to work together. You don't want to get in front of yourself on bricks and mortar right now, I don't think. You, you want to let the web stay in front of your bricks and mortar. Why do you have to decide things now, you know? And retail is about risk, and you always know time is risk. And so any decision you can decide tomorrow without cost is is worth putting off. So you put these decisions, open the 10 stores, and the answer Mm -hmm. will be there when you get to that destination, you know? Uh, Maybe there's a little bit public markets ask you to have like this, the five-year plan, we're going to have (laughs) 1,500 stores. Uh, A quality business doesn't have a five-year plan. It, It has 10 stores, Let's see what the impact is and and adjusting. There's continual adjustment. So maybe Mm -hmm. markets don't like that, but entrepreneurs, that's the way to do it today if it's going to be special and meaningful and and not hampered or or injured, you know, or handicapped, let's Mm say. Mm -hmm. And then how do you think about when is the right time to take those risks? I mean, I can imagine, Kendall, what it must have felt like to open your first store and it's like, oh, there's a lot on the line. When should Kendall be thinking about taking these risks um, and how fast? I don't think it's 10 stores all at once, mm-hmm. uh, but what's what's the right what's the right pattern there? I, I, I'm sitting here in awe of Kendall and now you're asking me to give her advice. Oh, my Lord. Um, <laughs> when's the right time? I don't know. As entrepreneurs, maybe we have a tendency to overcreate chaos. Like there's so much going on in our mind. We have more ideas than we can possibly 
finance or or build. I think if you're probably good, I bet you Kendall and her sister have way more ideas than they could possibly finance. Am I right to say that? That's correct. I, so. I like the, the chaos of ideas <laughs> in my head. Getting the priorities out is the struggle. Exactly. Yeah. And so what, you know, it's, it's just as important to know what to say no to than to what to say yes to. Do you see yourself going to the U.S. with bricks and mortar, Kendall? We don't have the resources to attack the U.S. market. And I think right now we're more focused on excelling where we do go. And I think we see more opportunity for us to excel in Canada at this moment, we sell into the U.S. with e-commerce, so we have customers down there, but we don't actively try to acquire customers like in the U.S. right now. Um, so right now, it is very focused on Canada, and I mean, Poppy Barley's only just six years old. So for me to think 20 years from now, I can't. Like, yeah. I, I just don't think quite that far yet. So um, in the next five years, do I see us going to the U.S.? Likely, I don't know if that will be with a store. Yeah, it's funny. I think there's been an over, like everyone thought scale in the year 2000. You got to get up to scale, 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 scale. If you're a long tail business that's about commodity products in a, you know, a very defined market, scale is important. But, you know, in a more niche, authentic business that's based around values, I think it's overrated. And I think technology has had this sort of paradoxical effect also of creating these huge businesses, but also allowing scale to matter less, you know, the marginal utility of scaling up has fallen. So you, you really have to think about your organic traffic, your ecosystem, and not overrate sort of the sort of, oh, we're going to go to the U.S. because we need scale. It's yeah, overrated. Exactly. And certainly scale is way overrated when you come to, when it comes to people. Yeah. There's no scale. There's there's diseconomies <laughs> to scale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because every person creates a new challenge. Yeah, the best moments that we've had at Poppy Barley in terms of breakthroughs have been when nobody would give us money. When the banks all said yeah. no and there was no options and you, it was like, okay, well, we have to rethink this for survival. We've always come out somewhere better in those moments. And I think really in the first few years, we would have been given a large amount of money. I'm not sure we would have really known what to do with it. You have to be really careful that you, you learn from you're open, but you also keep your creative space and you don't lose that ability to do those great things that usually, if they're great and they make sense financially, someone's probably done them. <laughs> you yeah. know? So they have to be great creatively and probably they're not very clear financially what to do, but you believe and you force forward with them. Peter Simons is the custodian of a family business that has grown tremendously during his tenure. But he recognizes that growth, for growth's sake, isn't what has gotten him or La Maison Simons to this point. He's committed to balance, to innovative design, and to a pragmatic view of the value of technology. Meanwhile, Poppy Barley is beginning to test the waters that Simons has been swimming in for several decades. Kendall Barber is still figuring out the right formula of online versus in-person, the desire to be socially responsible versus a desire for growth. And these aren't zero-sum, but getting the balance right is tricky and constantly in flux. For both Simons and Poppy Barley, one thing is certain. It's a big country, and there are lots of places to go, lots of new markets to explore, and lots of ideas still waiting to be found. This is Earning Curve, a podcast about business in Canada from Interact 
and Gimlet Creative, with additional production by Transmitter Media. This is our last episode of the season. If you've been enjoying the show, leave us a review or recommend us to a friend. I'm Michelle Romano. Thanks for listening.